here. So let's jump right into this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's their goal is we need to be equipped. That's why we've been on this series. Talking about you and I as the body of Christ, what we are here to do, how are we prepared by God. And we've gone through several aspects of that, but we've turned our attention toward the area of healing. Asking what is God's will in all of this? How does he move? What does he do? And we've looked at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 the last couple of weeks. It says we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. And we've talked about how you and I were created as his imagers, his representatives on the earth. From the very beginning that man was created to represent God on the earth, to expand the garden, to expand the kingdom, and to go about that. And you and I here today are to do the exact same thing. He gave a command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. He gave a command to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. And guess what, y'all? We need to be fruitful and multiply. The multiplying part is the only thing that God has commanded that mankind has gotten correct. We've screwed up everyone. But that one, we have multiplied. But the thing is, is when we look at this from a spiritual aspect, how should we be multiplying? You see, when we are his ambassador, meaning we are his representative, we are here in his stay. He is with the Father. He is sitting on the throne next to him. He is the head. We are the body. We're his hands. We're his feet. We're his mouthpiece. What are we to do? As God, we're pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. That's our job. So we had to ask the question, if we are Christ's representative on the earth, then we should do what Jesus did. What would Jesus do? We should ask that all the time. And if you guys, we've talked about this, we kind of joked about it. If you were around in the 90s, right, when that whole thing, you maybe had the bracelet or the t-shirt, and in everything, you're supposed to ask, well, what would Jesus do? You know, you go to the restaurant, and you're like, do I want a hamburger or a chicken sandwich? What would Jesus do? <laughs> but I mean, that's what it became. It literally did. We were joking all the time, you know. I do I want chocolate or vanilla? Well, what would Jesus do? He'd get mother load. Right? No, not mother. Which one did you like? Caramel caribou. That's what it was. I'm talking ice cream now. You guys can't keep yeah. up with me. It's all right. So the thing is, is we're like, well, what would Jesus do? And how do we look at that? We look at it from a moral standpoint. The good that he did, how he went to the marginalized and the, and the lost and the hurting and the, and the sick, but what was it that Jesus did? Well, we looked at this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. He said, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases, torments, those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them. So what did he do? Well, he went around teaching, he went around preaching, and he went around healing. But what else did he do? Well, in Matthew chapter 20... Verse 28, well, starting 27, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. But just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So what else did he do? He died and ultimately resurrected. And according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus had not resurrected, then we're still lost in our sins. Our faith is futile. So what did Jesus do? Well, he went around teaching, he went around preaching, he went around healing. He ultimately died, but he got his life back. And we are to mimic every aspect of that. We should be teaching, we should be preaching, we should be healing, we should be laying down our lives as living sacrifices, also willing to lay down our life as a holy sacrifice for the cause of Christ, knowing that in the day that the Lord returns, we will be resurrected and have this new body. How many of y'all are ready for a new body? Me too. Do you know that surgeons can do that kind of now, before my wife find out? Do you know they can install abs? I just found this out. You can get abs installed by a doctor. I don't know how much it costs, but when they call me back, I'll let you know, okay? <laughs> but I mean, that's what we're doing. And so we look at the what aspect, but one thing I always hammer on is that we're really good about teaching our children the what's of the faith, what we believe, but we don't ever get into the details of why it is we believe it. How do we know it's true? So we know what Jesus did, and we know that we should be mimicking this in the teaching, preaching, healing, ultimately dying, but we don't know why he did it. Most of the time when I ask the question, why did Jesus do what he did? What moved Jesus? You know what the number one response is? Faith. He responds to faith. Is that true? Sure it is. 
But that's not the entirety of it. Because what moved Jesus to do all of these things is the same thing that moves you and I for different aspects. It's the same thing that should move us to do what these are. Do you know what that is? I'm going to tell you here in a minute. But first I'm going to show you a video. Okay? Go ahead and watch this. It's Monday morning and it's time for school. This is the happiest time of the day. It's a dream for every girl in my village to go to school. They say if you educate a girl, you educate our whole country. I've never gone to school. I have to work. My name is Sonia, and I'm almost 12 years old. I start my day by carrying mud bricks. I'm sad to see the other children go to school. I wish I could go to school with my friends. My parents had to go to a far-off village to look for work, and I don't know when they'll return. I have nowhere to live, and I must survive on my own. My biggest problem is finding food to eat. The last time I ate was three days ago. It's planting season here. I have to find work wherever I can. If I'm lucky, I can find someone who will let me work in their fields. My mother taught me how to dig gardens and prepare for planting. It's hard work. Today, I got paid with four potatoes. I'll try to make this last for the next four days. I don't have a home, so I have to find a place to sleep. I don't have a blanket, only a thin cloth to help keep me warm. When it's quiet, I think about a different life. Will I ever go to school? If I were healthier, if I had more money, could I ever be lucky enough to go down that different path and join my friends at school? This is my hope. This is my dream. A dream for a different life. So the next time your kids fight you and clean in the room, you just tell them you want to carry a rock on your head? Now as you watch that, how many of you guys are sitting there thinking, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you turn off the camera and feed the poor child? Right? As you watch something like that, it tugs at your emotion. You don't have to be a born-again believer to feel sorry for this kid, assuming that the story is true. I did not fact-check it, and unfortunately it wasn't on Facebook, so they would do it for me, okay? But the thing is, is like there's something that tugs at the heart, because here is somebody that is severely less fortunate than any of us, 12 years old, kind of making it on their own, has to go work all the time. Suddenly your kid making their bed doesn't seem like that trivial of a task, not a big deal. And it tugs at your heart. And there's stuff like this all the time. We see this stuff when you, I mean, you go out on the mission field, those of you have, but Jim goes down to El Salvador all the time. What do you see? You see this kind of stuff happening. Like we prayed for a kid down there in El Salvador one time and he was so grateful that he went home and wanted to give us something. So he brought us back fried plantains. Now listen, all food is a blessing. I'll never turn it down. But that's what the kid had. And he just wanted to give, so he was so grateful. You know, and it just, it tugs at your heart. You're like, oh my goodness, I need to do something. How many was ready to sign up and sponsor this kid? I'll give the $39 a month. I'll give up Starbucks for a while. I'll do whatever. It tugs at your heart. Has anybody ever seen that video before? No, probably not. But let me show you one that you probably have seen. Go ahead. In the
Hi, I'm Sarah McLaughlin. Will you be an angel for a helpless animal? Every day, innocent animals are abused, beaten, and neglected, and they're crying out for help. Please call the number on your screen and join the BC SPCA with a monthly gift right now. For just $18 a month, only 60 cents a day, you'll help rescue animals from their abusers and provide medical care, food, shelter, and love. Call or join online in the next 30 minutes, and you'll receive this welcome kit with the photo of an animal in the shelter right now—one who's been given a second chance, thanks to you. Right now, there's an animal who needs you. Your call says, "I'm here to help." Please call right now. We could do this all day. Now, what's funny is some of the spoofs on that are hilarious because there were people that shot video of their well-groomed golden retriever who's sad because the food bowl's empty because he ate it all. You know, things like that. But it is funny. But what what do we see here? We see somebody. Less fortunate, or something in this case, the animal, and that was meant to be kind of funny because we're all sitting there like, "Man, I got eighteen dollars. Like, I don't care how bad you got it in life, you could probably find eighteen bucks to take care of Fido, you know, and his bad, you know. I'm not telling you to give money that because I don't even know if they're a worth a darn institution. I don't know anything about it. I know Sarah McLaughlin; she had some good music. But the thing is, is that what moves us in this? It's one word. It's compassion. If you're a compassionate individual and you see somebody hurting, you can't help but help. Should you have the means, should you have the ability? If you see somebody struggling financially just to put food on the table, not because they're lazy, but because they really are just struggling, most people, whether you're born again or not, there's something in you that you will step up and you will fill that void in any way you can. And here's the thing: I'm going to tell you, Jesus was moved by the exact same thing. The reason. That Jesus taught, the reason that he preached, the reason that he healed, and the reason that he died was for the exact same reason: compassion. I'm going to show this to you in a minute, but think about this: is if you have the ability, how many people do you think don't step in in that situation? The question is: is do we have the ability? You see, when people came to Jesus, they came to him with needs. When they approached Jesus, there was something they were approaching him for. And so, let's look at this again. Matthew chapter nine, verse thirty-five. Jesus went about all the cities and villages. We've been reading this every week. He was teaching in their synagogues. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, what happened? He was moved with compassion for them. Because they were weary and they were scattered like sheep having no shepherd, and then he said to the disciples, "The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers to his harvest." As he scanned the crowds, he saw sick people. He saw people that needed to be taught, needed to be preached to. He saw people he was going to give his life for, and he was moved with compassion for them. Let's look at another one: Matthew chapter fifteen. Starting in verse twenty-nine, it says Jesus departed from there. He skirted the Sea of Galilee and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. And so the multitude marvelled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, "I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have." Nothing to eat, and I do not want to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. You see, he had taken care of their spiritual necessity, and he still cared enough to meet their physical ones. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. What moved him? It's his compassion. Look at Matthew chapter twenty, verse twenty-nine. We're just going to go through some verses today. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, saying, "Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David!" Now, just so you know, "Son of David" is a messianic phrase, so they're calling him Messiah. 
And a multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do? And he said to them, Lord, that our eyes may be open. And what happens? Jesus had compassion. And he touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. What moved him? His compassion for them. Let's look at Luke chapter 7, verse 11. Now it happened the day after that he went into the city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now let's stop there for a minute. Why is this a big deal? We don't understand the culture. Because, number one, the only son is a problem. Because who carries on the name? Number two, she's already a widow. Who's going to take care of her? A woman could not care for herself at this point. So this was her only means of sustenance. Her son was the one that was going to provide. A large crowd from the city was with her, and the Lord saw her. He had compassion on her. And he said, do not weep. He came and he touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. Now stop. He came and he touched the coffin of a dead person. What does that do? Makes him unclean. He's technically not supposed to do this. So he said, young man, I say to you, arise. He who was dead sat up and began to speak, and he presented him to his mother. And fear came upon all of us, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. What happened? When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And what did he do? Raised the son from the dead. You know what makes you clean versus unclean? Unclean is what happens when you touch a dead body. You know what makes you clean? When that body doesn't stay dead. But what moved him? It was the compassion of a hurting mom and also the physical needs that she was going to have. Did, she res- did he respond to her faith? No. There was no faith. She wasn't looking for her son to be raised. Jesus saw it and Jesus hurt with her. And Jesus knew the power was within him to do this. Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by the boat as a deserted place by himself. When the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out and saw a great multitude, he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. Are you guys picking up on a trend? You see, we don't think about this. We think that Jesus always responded to faith. God only responds to faith. The thing is, is that what Jesus responded to was the compassion that he had. Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 6, verse 32. So they departed to a deserted place to boast themselves. Uh, did I just read this? Is this the same story? Hold on. Let me, let me, maybe it's the same story. Both the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran on foot to all the cities, and they arrived before them and came together. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude, was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach many things. Now, why did he have compassion on them? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. Why is that a big deal? What happens when the sheep have no guidance? They do sheep things, which is dumb. I should have got this. There's a video going around. Did you guys see it? There is a sheep stuck in this hole in the ground. It's just like carved trench. And the guy's there, and he pulls the sheep out. He pulls about three times. He finally gets it out. The sheep runs around, jumps in the air, and falls in the hole again. It's a sheep thing. Do you wonder why God refers to us as sheep? Because we do stupid things. But what happened? He was moved with compassion Because they were like sheep with no shepherd. And how did he solve that? He began to teach. How about Romans chapter 5, verse 1? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ die for us? He died for us because he loved us. He had compassion upon the multitudes. 
You see, it's talking about, and Paul's talking about here, is that a man might give his life for a good guy, but nobody gives their life for a bad guy's. And we were all bad guys. And Jesus gave his life for us because he loved us. Let's look at another one. John chapter 15, verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay one's down, life, one, down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, and if you do whatever I command, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you these things I command that you love one another. What does it mean to love somebody? You have compassion on them where they are, but you don't leave them where they are. Is it compassionate when you drive somebody who's got a blown tire on the side of the interstate and you just keep on cruising? It's not compassion. Is it compassion when you pray, Lord, please send somebody to them? If you have the ability to change the tire, we don't need the blind leading the blind, okay? Is it compassion when you see somebody sitting on the street and you, they're just looking for a meal and they're looking for something and you got a wad of cash in your pocket and you just walk on by? Well, maybe you're concerned what they're going to spend the money on and that's a fair concern. I'm not discounting that. But you know, at the end of the day, I'll let God deal with that. Because if I've got the means, I want to help. Was it compassion with the Good Samaritan where he was the only one that picked up the guy that had been beaten and took care of his bills, and took care of everything, when everybody else passed on by. What motivated him? It was compassion. What makes you send money for Sonia? What makes you give money for those poor puppies and kitties? And It's compassion. We're moved with compassion all the time, and we don't even realize it. It plays on us. They play on us. What moved Jesus? It was compassion. That's why he taught. That's why he preached. That's why he healed. That's why he died. See, where I'm going with this is if we're to be mimicking what Jesus did, we have to be moved by what Jesus was moved by. And the problem we have is, too often, we forget where we've come from. We forget that we were lost sinners deserving of eternal damnation. And we take for granted of that, what Jesus had done for us. See, if inside of us is the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, and we are to be his ministers, then how much do you have to hate somebody to not lay hands on them? How much do you have to hate somebody who you know is dying and going to hell to not tell them about this love that has taken care of your existence? You guys may have heard about an accident that just happened over in Peru yesterday morning, 5.30 a.m., 21-year-old girl, roller accident, killed two little babies at home. I know the family, I know them well, I've been good friends with them for a long time. What, what compassion do we have? You, that's the reason GoFundMe exists, is because people are moved with compassion for things that are happening. And you know what's sad? Is that unbelievers move by the same thing that we do. How much do you have to hate somebody to not tell them what changed your life? But this goes beyond that. Because I want to show you something I've never taught before here that ties into something that I've taught before here a couple of times. It's the concept of the four messianic miracles. So let me give these. I'm going to give this a brief overview because I've taught on it. Some of you may have not been here, but so I want to give you an idea of what we're talking about. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it. There were four miracles that the leadership, the Pharisees believed that when Messiah came, that he and only he would be able to perform because these were things that only God himself could do. No man on earth could perform these. Cleansing a leper, leper, casting out a deaf and dumb spirit, the healing of some sort of a birth defect, and the raising of the dead after the third day, i.e. the fourth day. Now let me explain why. Number one, the cleansing of a leper. They believed that leprosy was put on you by God, thus only God could take it away. It had never been done. The nation of Israel had never had a leper healed. But they believed when Messiah came that he and he alone would be able to cleanse a leper. The casting out of deaf and dumb spirit, the reason they say that is they did exorcism. They had Jewish exorcists that did this all the time. And the formula was is that when you were standing there and if you were demon-possessed, they'd ask the name of the demon. So you watch Jesus do that. He said, what is your name? We are legion because we are many. 
And then at that point, they could exercise it. But if they were deaf and dumb, in other words, they could not hear and couldn't speak, not that they were stupid, that, then they couldn't give the name, and thus they could not be exercised. So only Messiah could do that. The healing of a birth defect, born blind, born lame, whatever, is that it was the sin of the parents or the individual, and that because of that, this was judgment from God, and therefore only God himself could solve this. And the last was the raising of the dead after three days. They believed that the spirit of man lied with the man for three days, but after the third day, that um, the body would be too decomposed and he could not be resurrected at that point under normal circumstances, if there is such a thing as resurrection under normal circumstances. Thus, only Messiah could do it. These were all signs that when Messiah came, he would perform these miracles. What would happen at that point in time is that should one of these miracles be taken place, that it would get reported to the Pharisees who were in charge of the Sanhedrin at the time. The Pharisees would begin to investigate. There was two parts to the investigation. First one, they would sit back and watch. And the second one, they would begin to ask questions, very probing questions. Because the Pharisees, because they were in charge of the Sanhedrin with the representatives of Israel, had to declare who the Messiah was. At least that's what they believed. So if you've ever wondered why the Pharisees were always hanging around Jesus, now you know why. Now, let's begin to look at this. We're going to go through this fairly quickly, but I want you to watch something we've not talked about. So, cleansing of a leper, Mark chapter 1, verse 40. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. What happens? He makes him clean. But look what happens, 41. Then Jesus moved with compassion. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priests, and offer your cleansing to those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them, which is part of the, Mesi- Mosi- ah, the law of Moses. Thank you. I can't even talk today. Okay? Did he keep his mouth shut? No. Neither would you. But what moved Jesus to do this? You see, Jesus is performing this miracle as part of the expectation, but what moved him was the compassion he had for this man. Let's look at the next one, the casting out of a deaf and dumb spirit. Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he said to the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. And then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed, convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. And often he has been thrown into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So the guy knows that Jesus can, but he's asking for the mercy. Do you, will you have compassion? Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying, A deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out and convulsed him greatly and came to him, and he became as one dead, and that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. What was the man looking for? Compassion. Why? It's the same thing as you're walking down the street and a beggar says, Do you have any change? He's reaching for compassion. He knew that if Jesus would have compassion on him, he could take care of his son. Let's look at the next one, the healing of a birth defect. We're going to start in John chapter 9. I know we're going kind of quick. John chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Now Jesus passed by. He saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now you notice that. Now why am I pointing this out? It's because this is the underlying belief and the reason they're asking questions. No different than when they thought Messiah came, he was going to set up his kingdom, and that's why they're saying, is now the time you're going to set it up? Can I sit at your right hand? Can I sit at your left hand? And he just kept saying, we all shut up about this? So they believed that because he was born blind, either he sinned or his parents sinned. But what does Jesus say? Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
And when he said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, we were just kind of discussing this thing this morning. We are watching a video about, uh, Lester, not Lester Summerall, uh, Smith Wigglesworth. If you know anything about Smith Wigglesworth, he's a pretty rough dude. They talked about he kicked the baby and it got healed and all of that. And as I told them, we won't be doing any of that today. But if you're going to hack a loogie onto the ground and make mud and you're going to rub it on my eyes, the only pass you get is if it works. So you better know what you're doing. Because somebody's getting hands laid on them after that. <laughs> Verse 7, he said to them, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. So it works. So Jesus is in good shape. Verse 8, therefore the neighbors of those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, eh, it's like him. But he said, no, it's me. Therefore they said to them, okay, well, how are your eyes open? And he said, He answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received sight. They said to him, well, where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought him who formerly was blind to the Pharisees. Now, why are they doing this? Man born blind. Now he sees by an individual. Take him to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath. When Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, and the Pharisees also asked him again how he'd received his sight, and he said to them, he put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Was it that simple? It was that simple. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, well, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. These are all good questions, because if you're sinning, you can't be from God. But if it worked, only God can do this. There is a conundrum. So they said to the blind man again, well, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, well, he's a prophet. Verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked him saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Now his parents answered and said, we know that this is our son, step one, and that he was born blind, step two. But by what means he now sees, we don't know. And who opened his eyes, we don't know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. Let him explain. Why did they do that? His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. So they'd already declared anybody confessing Jesus is excommunicato. They're gone. They're done. These guys are fearful of that. This was a big deal. Okay? They couldn't just do online church back then. Verse 23. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, though I was blind, now I see. Is it that simple? It really is that simple. That's what he knows for sure. He doesn't understand the mechanics. He didn't have all great faith. He didn't have any of this stuff. He just knows, I couldn't see, and now I can. Then he said to him again, well, what did he do to you, and how did he open your eyes? He said, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And I love this next line. Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that. I love that. Verse 28. Then they reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciple. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, why? This is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Both true statements, right? Part of that Old Testament, that Old Covenant. Verse 32, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. Why is that? Only God can do that. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, you were completely born in sin, and you are teaching us? And they cast him out. Why did they say that? Because they believed that if you were born with something like this, you were born into sin. So Jesus heard, verse 35, that they had cast him out, and when he found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he said, Well, who is he, that I may believe in him? 
And Jesus said, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now you see. We see, therefore, or now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Now stop there, because here's the thing. Why did Jesus do this? Was he just trying to prove something? No. You can drill down and you can begin to see, okay, he's moved with compassion for this individual. They're going to watch this take place, and he's kind of laying it out there on the Pharisees, right? And this is usually where we stop, but we're going to go into chapter 10, verse 1, because he's still, this is just a continuation on. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Remember that word. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Does that sound like a shepherd thing? Absolutely, that's what happened. When you've ever seen anything like that, have you ever seen when they like call for cows? It's the coolest thing ever. They go out, they holler, and the cows come running in. I had a friend of mine that had about 40 cats that did not live in a house, okay? But she would walk outside with the food dish and make this whoop, you know, sound, and they just came from everywhere. It was almost creepy. It's the thing that horror movies are made of. So, when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Verse 5, yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of the stranger. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. So Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Stop. Who is he referencing? He's referencing these Pharisees who already predetermined that anybody who declares him Messiah is out. Because they have to do that, and they said he's not. Whoever came before him are thieves and robbers. The sheep don't know their voice. They're not going to follow him. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He's the door you must enter through to find what? The rest. This is all theological here. The thief does not come except to do what? Still, kill, and destroy. Who's the thief? He's referencing the Pharisees. This false teaching, this idea, this isn't Satan. These people are putting ramifications to declaring Him Lord. They're keeping them from life. The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. A hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. In other words... Here comes the wolf. If you have no love for the sheep, you leave. Good luck. You're out. But he's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. And they know him by name. As the Father knows me, and even so I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not in this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. What's he talking about? Israel. The rest of the world. What are we talking about on Wednesday night? You guys see how this all ties together? That doesn't make sense to you. You need to come on Wednesday nights. Verse 17, therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Why did he do this? Why does he lay his life down for the sheep? Why did he do all of these things? It's the compassion. You guys see this? What motivated Jesus was his love for the people. He loved the sheep even when they're doing stupid sheep things. He just pulled you out of the ditch and you jumped back in. I'll pull you out again. But they know his voice and they follow him. There's one way in. 
But the thief and the robber is trying to keep people from doing this. Now, let's look at the last one, the raising the dead after the three days, okay? Now, watch this closely. John chapter 11, verse 1. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, her sisters went to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, let me ask you a question. If you hear this, somebody that you love, a family member, whatever it is, you have the ability to take care of that situation, heal them. What does one who loves that person do in that situation? They go. If you hear about a loved one who you care about that just lost their job and the bank's getting ready to foreclose on their house and you have the means to help them out, they're not being lazy. Life happened. They're in a pinch. What do you do? You write the check. Because you love them. Because you're moved with compassion for them. So here it is. The one whom you love, Jesus, he is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, that's an interesting phrase. So Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when they heard that he was sick, what does he do? He stayed two more days in the place where he was. Well, that's love. Doesn't that sound more like the guys that avoided the dude standing on the street that got beat? Doesn't sound like the good Samaritan. It sounds like the guys who just, ah, I love you, but. So, verse 7, and after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you there, and you are going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So again, they're being sheep here. They're not the sharpest tools in the shed. Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless... Let us go to him. So he's glad for their sakes that Lazarus is dead. Now, very compassionate. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, Well, let us go that we may die with him. Because they know they're trying to kill Jesus there and they're committed to him. We're just all going to go out together in a blaze of glory. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for how many days? Four. What are we looking for? Anything more than three. Does four count? Yes, some of you were homeschooled. That's good. All right. Verse 18. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that a true statement? Absolutely. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Is that a true statement? Yes. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Another true statement. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. And Jesus had not yet come into town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. This is a grieving process. It was normally a seven-day process that the family would be with them. Then when Mary came uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that a true statement? Still is. Didn't change, did it? Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, that's an interesting phrase. It was like something moved him. He was bothered by seeing their hurt. He knew what he was going to do. But he was still hurting with them. And he said, 
where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come see. And then Jesus wept. The easiest verse to memorize in the entire Bible. Why did he weep? He knew what he was there to do. He was moved by their hurt. He had compassion for them. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? It's a fair question. It's also a true one. Jesus, again groaning in himself, so he's still hurting, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead how many days? Four. Remember what they believed. Jesus said, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. He'd perform the last messianic miracle. But look at that. He knew what he was there to do, and he was still moved with compassion. He still cried with them. He still hurt with them. He knew what he was there to do. You can picture a mummy coming out. Now, how did the leadership respond to this? They tried to have Lazarus killed because it was proof. We couldn't have proof. You see, Jesus was moved with compassion, and that's why he taught, and that's why he preached, and that's why he healed, and that's ultimately why he died. And there's one more part of this, is you have to understand what was going on. What did Jesus want? He wanted them to receive their Messiah, but they rejected it. And all the signs were there. There was other things that were going on. All of it was there, and they still rejected it. It wasn't that they didn't see, they refused to see. They rejected truth, a lot like what we're seeing today. But look at Luke chapter 19, verse 28. When he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near Beth, to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite of you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. When they brought him to Jesus, they threw down their clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the, on the road. And then as he was drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice and all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And as he drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He is declaring the judgment that will fall on Jerusalem in 70 AD. Did he want to? He cried. He wept as he was saying those words because he knew what was going to happen and it didn't have to be that way. But they chose that. You see, what moves Jesus should be the same thing that moves us. If you were sitting at home one weekend and you developed a cure for cancer, and however you pull that off, good for you, and you've got it, you know it works, and there's no doubt in your mind that it works 100% every time, and then you hear about your neighbor who just got diagnosed with cancer. What is your response? Well, peace, may the Lord be with you. But that's how we act. See, when we look at what would Jesus do, we look at it from the standpoint, it's like, well, you know, he, he fed the poor, and he took care of the widows, and he said nice things and all of that. This is what Jesus did. And now we know what moved him. The question is, why aren't we doing these? And why aren't we moved in the same way? 
I mean, there are people around us every day that are hurting. I got a family I'm going to deal with here very soon that are hurting right now. A father lost a daughter, a sister and a brother lost a sister, and two babies lost their mom. What moves us? You guys all hurt because you hear that. We're compassionate. What can we do? We can be his hands, his feet, his mouth. That's what we can do. You see, we need to wake up, church. We've got to get after it. We've got to quit going through the motions and sitting in the stands hoping somebody is going to go on the field and do something. We're waiting for the next guy. Every day is that opportunity, but we don't take it because we're too caught up in our day-to-day lives. We want to take Jesus, throw him in our back pocket, and bring him out when it's convenient. And yet, Jesus was consumed with all of this. Why aren't we? Why does this not lead and guide us every day of our lives? We've got to begin to look internally. So we're going to dig in this a little bit deeper as we go forward. Amen. You guys getting something out of this? I am. We've got one more thing we've got to take care of. Did you guys know? The Millers got their marching orders. They were prepared in February that they were leaving. Fortunately for us, they got hung back a little bit longer, but it is official. They are leaving today. They're heading to Kansas. Man, go ahead and take your shoes off when you cross the border so you'll fit in. That was rough. You guys didn't catch that. That's a tough crowd. So we want to pray for them. I didn't forewarn them, but if you guys don't mind coming up, let's pray for them as a group. They've been awesome to have. We're trying to convince them to retire here. I don't know if we're going to convince them. We don't have enough crawfish up here. So, but if you guys come, whoever wants to come pray for them, let's do that. Let's send them out. Let's bless them. They've been awesome to have around. We really appreciate them. It's been a lot of fun. My kids have had a lot of fun with them.